Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Christian Church Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers who want to know Jesus and love like Him. Let's take a listen to this week's message. Hey man, go ahead and grab a seat. Nawa Campus, how we doing? Anybody excited to be here? Okay, good. You're in it, Fred Campus. Man, you know I love you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. Everybody online. Thanks for taking some time to be part of our service this morning. It's good to be with you. I'm excited because we're going to be finishing our series today on the life of David. We've been looking at some stories in David's life. And so we're going to finish that out here in just a little bit. But if you are here and you don't know Jesus or you're just new to church or you're still on a journey of kind of discovering about who God is and you've still got a lot of questions about faith, man, I'm glad that you're here today because we're going to be talking about a topic that really has to do with the core of our faith. And so you've picked a good Sunday to be here. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for like 30 years, and I'm looking around and some of you have been, okay, you've been following Jesus for 30 years uh, and you're here today, it's good that you're here. Because we all need to be reminded, again, of this truth that, that we're going to be talking about. So uh, you're here, and it's good, and my prayer has been that God would use this time uh, for us to be together, to encourage us, and to equip us, and to challenge our hearts and minds to become more like Him. So I'm glad that you're here. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, one day midweek over at the Fred campus, I was working, I was hanging out, and there was somebody, an older gentleman who walked into the campus who asked to speak to one of our pastors. And I just happened to be there that day. And so we got connected, me and this gentleman. Uh, and I started to get to know this guy's story a little bit. And his story was that um, he had been diagnosed with cancer several years before we met and uh, had been on this journey, but had finally got to a point where the cancer was really overtaking his body. And the doctor had told him that he had about six weeks to live. And so he went on a kind of an adventure to figure out where uh, he would have his funeral. And so he walked into the Fred campus and got connected with me. And, and he lived in Decono, which is where I live. He lived there his whole life. And he began to tell me his story and how he just never really was connected with the church or engaged with church. Now he's come to the end of his life and, and he's asking a lot of big questions about God. And so he came to the Fred campus and was wondering if he could have his funeral at our church. And so I gave him a tour of our campus and eventually his funeral would be held at our church and I actually got to preach at it as well. And, and through the discussion, I, I remember asking him this question. I said, you've lived in Dakota your whole life. You must have driven past this campus hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. And I'm just wondering why, why you never came to a service. Did you ever think about coming on a Sunday morning? And he said, Matt, I thought about it, but, but then as I began to think, I would talk myself out of it. And here's what I, here, here's the thoughts that would pop into my mind that, um, that I wouldn't be welcome here. I said, well, why would, you, why would you say that? Why would you feel that? He goes, well, I'm not like you. See, you got your life all together. I'm, I'm a mess. I don't look like you and I don't talk like you. And I haven't lived like, like I'm assuming you've lived. And so I just, I just figured you probably wouldn't want me here. I would, I, I'd kind of, you know, bring the vibe down a little bit. I, and, and so I just assumed I just, I just wasn't welcome. And, and I remember having a discussion with him and going, friend, you are so far from the truth. Brother, I would have driven to your house and picked you up and brought you here if you would want to be here. And I remember thinking, and I remember saying to him, you know what, through this conversation, we're gonna work as hard as we can because we always wanna be a church that is inviting and welcoming not just our people, Christian people, but all people. 
I want the people in the Tri-Town area to know that they are always welcome to come and to hear the message of Jesus. And we're gonna do everything we can to take out all the barriers that would prevent people from coming and hearing. And that gentleman actually made a decision to follow Jesus. And through that discussion, he said, Matt, here's what I want you to do. At my funeral, all my friends and all my family are gonna be there. And, and a lot of them have never been to church either. And so I want you at my funeral to invite every single person to come to Rocky. And I hope they show up. And at his funeral, I got to preach the gospel. And I invited every single person there to come and, 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 and to hear and say, hey, this is a place for you that you can belong here way before you believe. You can belong here way before you believe and you don't have to look or act or talk like us. You can just show up and I want you to know that we get excited when you do. So we just got to own this a little bit as church people and, and especially in the context of church history, there's been so many seasons of church or you may have even grown up in church where you just get this vibe like, hey, everybody around here is perfect or a vibe that, you know, the church, church people, they are better than you. I don't know if you've ever bumped into that before. I grew up in church. I, I mean, I was born, I was in church. I mean, I had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, I was in church. And I remember growing up in church and getting into my middle school and high school years and feeling this of, of I don't know if I belong in church because the church I grew up in as I would look around it just seemed like everybody was perfect they acted perfect they looked perfect they talked perfect they sat in the same pew every single week and I begin growing up uh, feeling the sense of I, I don't think I measure up because I don't feel like it's going well also there's a ton of rules that you got to follow there's all these rules. I remember having conversations with my mom and just there's all these rules about what you could wear and what you couldn't wear and how you could act and where you could go and where you couldn't go and what you could do and couldn't do. And I remember asking my mom, no joke, one time I go, can you wear Nikes and still be a Christian? <laughs> Apparently all you can wear is Spaldings from Kmart and I didn't get it. And I didn't like Spaldings. I remember this one time, uh, you know, I was at church, I'll never forget it. And our preacher, he was from England. He was an Engl English guy. And so uh, he got on stage on a Sunday morning and it was Super Bowl weekend. He got on stage and he, he said, listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you will be here tonight for service. And if you're not here, then you're not a Christian. And I remember getting in the car and driving home and looking at my mom going, I mean, we're not coming tonight, right? And she said, no, it's the Super Bowl. I go, yeah, we're still Christians, right? She goes, yes. I said, man, there's just all these rules. And I felt like, this is what it just felt like. Felt like I didn't belong. Felt like there's a group of people that were better than me at following all the rules. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he lived his life in such a way that people that were nothing like him, liked him. And he liked them back. And because he liked them back, they wanted to be close to him. Not because of all these rules, but because of a relationship. Jesus is really good at balancing this whole idea of grace and truth. And here's what I know. Here's been my experience. Maybe you've wrestled with this too. Nobody wants to be around self-righteous people. Nobody. Nobody wants to hang out with a group of people that consistently say to you and to me, I am better than you. Nobody. And if we're going to be a church that's going to be engaging with people who don't know Jesus, then we cannot be prideful in our religion. See, all of us have started in the same place. 
There was a moment in your life where you bumped into Jesus. You were at a camp, you were at a a, a service on a Sunday, somewhere along the way, somebody started talking to you about Jesus and you came to a conclusion that you wanted a relationship with him and you remember the excitement and the emotion of jumping into this relationship, receiving the fullness of God's joy and his mercy and his grace and it changed your life. And if we're not careful, what begins to happen over the years in our following of Jesus, this this gratitude of grace can so easily turn into pride of religion. We become about making rules and judging how other people follow those rules. I mean, this is the climate that Jesus would enter into when he came into this earth 2,000 years ago. It was a pride of religion, rule-based system. And here's the interesting thing that when Jesus shows up, he changed the game because the message of Christianity says that you can't earn your salvation and you surely don't deserve it. Aren't you glad you came to church? You can't earn it and you can't deserve it. You can't work your way into it. You can't buy it. You can't live in such a way that you would deserve it. This is what the early church leaders, this is one of the first big conversations of the early church. And Paul really leans into this. This is Romans chapter three, starting in verse 21. Look at this. He says, but in our time, something new has been added. He's talking about Jesus. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right, what we read about, has become Jesus setting things right for us. Again, you didn't do it, Jesus did. And not only for us, not just for us church people, but everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them in this, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God, not you, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He's talking about grace. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. Again, not you. Paul is leading in the early church movement and there's this huge debate between Jews and Gentiles. Us and them, them and us. And the Jews are going, okay, Paul, listen, I know we might not have it all together. I hear you. There's some things we got to do better in, but we're at least better than the Gentiles, right? At least give us that, Paul. I mean, these people are coming from idol worship. They're just, they're the messiest of the mess and and they're showing up. And so Paul, we're, we're at least better than them, right? And Paul goes, wrong. You've got it all wrong. See, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile because we're all sinners. Your righteousness isn't compared to the person sitting beside you. It's compared to Jesus. And so when you compare how you live, not to the person beside you, but to Jesus, what Paul says and what Jesus says is that all of us are falling short because you're not Jesus. And you can't save yourself. Jesus had to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Paul goes, no, no, no. You're no different because we're all sinners, which means the only reason you have access to faith is because of grace. And grace, it levels 
the playing field. Because everybody needs it. I mean, the only thing this morning separating you from the worst sinner in this world is grace. And my salvation and your salvation, if you're a follower of Jesus, our salvation has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. And this is the reminder that all of us need. It's what he did. And so we find ourselves journeying through, you know, the, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at some of the stories of David, and we, we kind of bump into this one story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. The verses will also be on the screen. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of in and out of certain moments of David's life. David is this, is this kid at an early age who is anointed as the future king of Israel. And it takes years and years and years before David will actually be king. In fact, there's several moments it kind of looks like he won't be king. The current king, his name is Saul, he hates David. David's kind of the new cool story of the town and, and, and he's doing things right. And he's getting some fame and momentum. And so Saul is all about getting rid of him. Saul wants David dead, but eventually Saul will die and his, the house of Saul will begin to uh, go away and David's house will begin to rise. And eventually, after many, many years, David will become king and not just king of Judah, but king of all Israel. And then we get to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a very interesting story. In fact, you may have been part of church for a long time, never read into this story. David's king and look what he says, starting in verse 1. And David asked... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's very interesting. David, he remembers in the past a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was the king's son, King Saul's son, the old king. And Jonathan would over and over again risk his life by protecting David from his dad who wanted David dead. And what Jonathan would do is he would give David the inside scoop about what Saul was thinking and what he was doing. And when his dad was about to make the move, he would ring up David and go, hey, guy, this is where you gotta go. This is what you have to do if you want to be safe. And so it's because of Jonathan's kindness that a lot of times kept David out of trouble. And there's just one moment between Jonathan and David where they make this covenant, they make this pact with one another. And here's essentially what they said. David looked at Jonathan and would say, I don't know how this is all gonna turn out. I know I'm the anointed future king of Israel, but your dad's king right now, and I'm, I may not make it. And so if I die, if your dad gets a hold of me and I die, can you promise me that you will watch over my house, that you will provide provision and protection? And Jonathan goes, absolutely. And Jonathan will look at David and go, David, if I don't make it out of this, because if you become king, that means there's probably something that happens to me. And if that happens, would you make a covenant with me to provide provision and protection over my house. And David says, absolutely. And Jonathan and David, they make this covenant. And now David is king and he remembers the covenant. He remembers it was Jonathan's kindness that kept him out of trouble and oftentimes kept him alive. And so David begins to think, how do I get access to the information if there's anybody left in the house of Saul? And it just so happens there's a servant at the palace who used to be the servant for, for King Saul that is now for King David and his name is Ziba. David calls for him and he says this to Ziba, this is verse three. The king asks, 
Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? I, I made a, a commitment to somebody I got to fulfill. And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. And he is lame in both feet. And we're going to find out in just a little bit that son's name is Mephibosheth, which is a mouthful to say. So I will just call him Meth from now on. Not Meth, but Meth, okay? Mephibosheth. And I'm just curious, just raise your hands. Fred, you participate as well. Raise of hands. How many of you know somebody whose name is David? Just raise your hand. You know David. Yeah. Yeah, we know David. How many of you know someone named Mephibosheth? Yeah. Doesn't get a whole lot of play. Here's this guy's story. This, this guy, he had a tough life. He was a prince in the kingdom of Saul. He, he was in line to be a future king. And when he was five years old, his dad, Jonathan, dies in battle. And his, his granddaddy, Saul, the king, dies in battle as well basically ending the house of Saul. And so you can imagine the panic in the palace, the news reaches the kingdom. The king is dead and the king's son is dead, which means the kingdom is in trouble. There's probably a new king coming in. And so there would be panic in, in the kingdom. There's panic in the palace. And you can go read this story in 2 Samuel chapter four, but there's a nurse that knows that Meph is in trouble. His life is, is at stake. So she grabs him in a panic to protect him and she begins to run with him into hiding. She is leaving the palace, but in her haste, she drops him. And when she drops him, it, it breaks his legs. He will be a cripple for the rest of his life. He will never walk again, which means in one day, in one day, Meph lost his family, he lost his position, he lost his wealth, and he will never be able to walk again. In a matter of hours, he literally loses everything. And here we are, years later, and David is wondering if there's anybody left from the house of Saul. Verse four, well, where is he, David asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Emil, and he's in Lodabar. David, he's in Lodabar. And Lodabar is this place you don't want to be. Literally means no pasture, no communication, no word. It is a place of negativity, no advancement. It's a place of dryness. You go to Lodabar to be forgotten. You go to Lodabar to never be heard from again. We have a story of Meph who grew up in the palace, potentially a future king of Israel, and at no fault of his own, experiences incredible loss, and he found himself now living in a place called Lodabar. Verse five, so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Emil. So David sends for Meph, and let me tell you, Meph is freaking out. He wants to live in the shadows. He doesn't want to be in the light. He wants to be forgotten. At best, at best, he is an enemy of the king because he is from the line of Saul. David finds him, brings him to the palace. Verse six, and when Meph, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. And David said, Meph, at your service, he replied again. Meph is freaking out because he probably thinks his life is about to come to an end. Meph is one of the last in the line of Saul. 
He's, a la- he's one of the last threats to the kingdom of David. And this is why David says what he says in verse seven, and friends, this is the gospel. David says to Meph, first three words out of his mouth, don't be afraid. Jesus will use that phrase over and over again throughout the New Testament with his followers. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. David says to Meph, don't be afraid. And then he said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Pause. I would love to be in the room in this moment. If you could just put yourself in the place of meth just for a second. A guy who has been rejected, a guy who is scared to death, a guy who is crippled, a guy who has lost everything, who's hiding out in Lodabar, gets called to meet with the king. And he stands before the king waiting to hear his death sentence. And David says, bro, you don't have to be scared. I'm going to change your life. Your life will never be the same from this day forward. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you your dad's land. I'm going to give you your grandpa's land. Meph, you're going to be rich. You're never going to want for anything for the rest of your life. And you're always going to eat at my table from now on. David essentially says to him, I'm adopting you into my family. You're going to be just like one of my sons. I'm going to change your life. Verse 8, Meph bowed down and said, what is your servant? I'm not your son. I don't deserve to be your son. What is your servant, king, that you should notice a dead dog like me? I don't think you know who I am. I'm nothing. I have nothing. I deserve nothing. Why would you love me? I mean, the Hebrew meaning for the name, uh, for, for Meth's name is from the mouth of shame. Meth has been living in shame pretty much his whole life. And he looks at the king and he goes, I don't know if you know me, but I'm the cripple from Lodabar. I don't think you want anything to do with me. I think you've got the wrong person. And David goes, no, no, I got the right guy. I'm going to change your life. And here's the thing, Meph, you didn't do anything to deserve this. But I'm doing this because of what somebody else has done for me. See, your dad showed me kindness when nobody else would. In fact, it's because of your dad, it's probably one of the big reasons why I'm here and I'm able to be king. And it took some years, Meth, but I finally became king and now it's my job because I made a covenant with your dad to show kindness to his house. You're right, you don't deserve this. But your dad did for me what I couldn't do for myself and so now I'm gonna do for you what you can't do for yourself. Lodabar. I don't know if you've ever had a Lodabar moment in your life. I've had a few. You find yourself in a place where you didn't think you'd be, feeling the weight of the world. Nine years ago, I started a journey to plant a church up in Boston. I'm not in Boston. It didn't go well. 
went on this two-year journey to plant a church. Up to that point in my life, even in ministry, just felt like anything that I jumped into with God, it just worked out. God was there. He would make things happen. He would make things move. He would put me in front of the right people. And so we jumped into this church plant. It was just uphill all the way. And we put everything we had into this church plant. And then two years down the road, we closed it down. And I found myself what I would call call a Lodabar season. I remember hearing voices inside my head going, shame on you, Matt. You messed up. Who would want you now? You're not going to be able to do ministry anymore. Who's going to take a, a chance on you? I mean, you've got failed church planner on your resume. You're no leader. Living in my Lodabar and like really feeling I'm in the middle of nowhere. I remember talking to my wife one, one morning and go, I, I feel like I can't do anything right. I feel like everything I do fails. I feel like I'm failing. As a husband, I feel like I'm failing as a dad. We begin having conversations about money. I could circle the date on the calendar where I would literally have no money. I remember calling up my mom and saying, hey, I, I, th- this is super embarrassing, but I, I may have to come home with my wife and four kids and live with you. I got nothing. This is not how I thought it was going to be. And I remember having conversations with God going, where are you? I could use some help right now. I don't know what the future holds, but it's getting kind of scary. And for nine months, we lived with this uncertainty of the future. And then just one day, I get a text from Somebody, you may have heard of this church. It's called Rocky Mountain Christian Church. It's a really good place. You should check it out sometime. I get a text from somebody that says, are you looking for a job? I said, yes. Hey, is it, okay? is it cool if I give your number to our lead pastor, Sean? Yes. And then one day, Sean called. And we began to have this conversation about what it might look for me to maybe lead at this church. And I remember the moment that we were able to accept the position and move out. And I remember God saying to me, Matt, sometimes it doesn't always work out in your timing. But I made a covenant with you a long time ago when I sent my son to the cross. And here it was that I would always be with you. No matter where you are, no matter what you do and the highs and the lows, I will always be with you even when it doesn't feel like I am. Meph is from low to bar. He has no future. And yet this is where God does some of his best work. God has a way of making a way out of no way. Keeps going. David sets everything in motion. Verse 13, and the story ends with this. And Meph lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And oh, by the way, he was lame in both feet. This is crazy. If you were at the kingdom, right, and you could eat at at David's table, the inner table, this is where the king eats his meals, and you would have the privilege to eat there, and you would see meth there. And you could just hear conversations, right? Somebody would eventually say, look at meth and go, "Are 
Are you Jonathan's kid? Yeah. Where are you from? Lodabar. Ooh, Lodabar. Ain't nothing good come from Lodabar. Hey, how'd you get here? How did you get to the king's table? You know the only thing that Meph could say? I got here because the king called. The king called. Yeah, but Meph, what did you do? I didn't do anything. The king called. I was hanging out in Lodabar, a nobody. And he called and he found me and he called me to the palace. And here's what I've been thinking this week. If you, if you were called by the king, if, if God the Father would call you today and say, hey, I want to meet with you. And you'd meet with the king and he'd say, hey, I want you to give an argument. I want you to give a defense of why you would deserve something from me. Why do you deserve my love? Why do you deserve my blessing? Why do you deserve my riches? Why do you deserve eternity? What argument would you give? Well, King, here's the thing. I think you owe me your love because of what? What star witness would you bring with you? What evidence would you put in front of you to show the King, this is why I deserve your affection. This is why I deserve your blessing. This is why I deserve your gratitude and your forgiveness and your mercy. And here's the thing, if that was a true, if you actually had to meet with him, there's only one thing that you could say. There's only one answer that you could give. And here it is, out of pure humility, say to the king, I've got nothing. I got nothing. I got no argument. I got no evidence. I've got no star witness of why you should do for me what I can't do for myself, King. I got nothing. And this is the story of the gospel. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you got to hear this and you got to get this. Meph didn't go find the King. The King went and found Meph. And he said, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to do something for you that you don't deserve, but I'm doing it because there was somebody who did the same thing for me. We have what we have in faith. Not because of our achievement. Not because we're really good at following the rules. Not because we did the five steps of religion. Listen, none of us in this room who are followers of God, none of us saved ourselves. We are here because there is a God who acted with grace and love and he found you. And it changed your life. It's because of love and it's because of grace and that's my message and that's your message. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Don't ever forget it. That Jesus showered you with his love. And he calls you his kids. He goes, listen, you're gonna sit at my table and now you're gonna be my sons and you're gonna be my daughters. You're children of God. That's what you are, that is who you are. Not because of your natural birth, not because of position, not because of prominence, not because of wealth, not because you're good at following the rules, but because of his love.
And if this Old Testament story doesn't get you excited and you're a follower of Jesus, friend, you're in trouble. This is all we got. If the message doesn't get you going, you're in trouble. If it, if it doesn't get you humble, you're in trouble. If that message doesn't hammer your pride into compassion, you're in trouble. If that message doesn't transform your self-righteousness into grace, there's no message that will. This is it. God help us to be people who proudly say, it's not all about me. It's about the King. It's about Jesus. This is what Paul kept on reminding the early church. Guys, this whole thing is about Jesus. In 1 Timothy, this is what he writes. Sums it all up. I think he does a really great job. I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 14, this is how Paul boils it down. The grace, the grace of Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Jesus. Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul goes, man, of all the sinners in the world, I was the worst and I think Jesus saved me. I think he found me. I think he called me to the table. I think he renamed me so that when people would see me, they would go, if God could save Paul, surely he could save me. Because that guy was a mess. That guy murdered Christians. That guy tried to shut the whole church thing down. And God saved him. If Jesus could do it for him, maybe he could do it for me. Paul goes, what a blessing now. The story I get to tell. Verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul goes, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about Jesus and what he has done on my behalf. Paul goes, this is what church, 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 listen, this is what you should do. You should live your life in such a way where somebody says to you, why do you live like that? Why do you forgive like that? Why do you love people who don't love you back? Why do you take up portions of your Sunday morning to go to church. What is it about this whole faith thing that intrigues you? Why do you do what you do? And here's our story. This was Paul's story. This is my story. This is your story. This was Meth's story. Why are you here sitting at the table? Why are you a follower of the King? Why do you believe in God? Here's my story. Because before I met him, I was in Lodabar with a crippled heart and the king called. 
And in one moment, he changed my life. He gave me riches beyond belief. He restored me, forgave me, set me on the right path. And he called me his kid. And he's promised to me that one day I can spend eternity with him. When the king calls, you answer because your life will be better for it. And I trust him with everything I have. How could I not? Why do you believe what you believe? Because the king called. Why do you think? Because the king called. Why do you do? Because the king called. And I was a nobody, nowhere. And in a moment, everything changed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, like me, that's your story too. It's the beauty of the gospel. So God help us to be as far from self-righteousness and pride of religion that we could be. Because without Jesus, I would be lost. And so would you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the reminder of the gospel that you love us when you didn't have to. That you were moved to go to the cross when you didn't have to. When you were willing to give up your life when you didn't have to. When you called and got our attention and were willing to engage with us in a conversation that was for our good. Remind your church, refresh our hearts one more time. This whole thing's not about us. And the truth of the story is that without you, we would be lost. So help us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, to live a life that would gain the attention of a world that is looking for something different. We could say, in our own way, in our own story, there was a day where I was in a place just like you and the king called and everything changed. That's our story. And help us to be the best storytellers that we could be. Help us to live out our faith in such a way this week that just might lead somebody to ask a better question. Father, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus. It's why we're here. And I pray that as a church, as we continue to gather together, that we will remind ourselves that this whole thing has everything to do with you and what you have done for us. So we worship you and we follow you because you're the king. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen.